The scripture reading this morning will come from Luke chapter 2, verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. You may be seated. morning. It's always good to, uh, to see you, to be with you, and I pray that you had a great week last week and you'll have a better week uh, this coming week. But this is another day the Lord has made. It's good for us to be here, uh, good for us to remember the Savior and to try to be an encouragement and a help to one another. Uh, the last few lessons that I've shared with you, I've tried to uh, continue to think about this theme of growing and you'll remember some time ago, we made note of the fact that Jesus grew. Jesus came into the world as an infant. He had to grow and develop, just as you and I have to grow and develop. He came into the world with a mission. He had a mandate. And it was not the case that he sort of didn't have to labor in order to make sure that he completed his mission and finished the mandate that he was given. In that way, he's just like we are. Uh, we have come into the world with a mission and a mandate. Certainly when we were born, the mission was there. We may not have adopted it fully, but when we were born again, we adopted it fully. And in order for us to meet that mandate, we have to grow also. We chatted about the fact that Jesus grew mentally or in wisdom. He grew physically or in stature. And in Luke 2 and 52, it next says he increased in favor with God and man. This morning, I want to talk about him increasing in favor with man or him growing socially. And you may notice that I'm skipping over for the time being him growing in favor with God, him growing spiritually. And the fact is, uh, not so very long ago, I did a lesson about spiritual growth. And so I thought maybe I'll stick a pen in that one and come back to it. And so this morning, we'll think about Jesus growing socially. And the fact is, if he did, we should too. Social growth. The word social has to do with interacting with individuals and groups. And the Bible says Jesus increased in favor with men. That is to say, he uh, was dealing with people, interacting with people, and he increased in his capacity to deal with people effectively. Jesus had to, depending on your translation, increase or advance or grow. He developed, he matured in terms of his ability to deal with other people effectively. Listen, to influence people for his father. I'm sure that when Jesus was 12 years old there in the temple, he had some capacity to influence people. But as he grew and developed, he became 16, he became 20, 25, and 30. The Bible says he was on an upward trajectory. He was getting better at dealing with people. I think that's interesting. Jesus was sent into the world to lay his life down. But before he laid his life down, you know what he had to do, don't you? He had to deal with people. He wasn't born and then sort of in a vacuum, he could say, well, I'll just go to the cross now. Before he could do that, he had to deal with people and talk with people and show people, draw people in. Then he laid his life down. 
Jesus had to, he had to develop in that area. And so do we. If you look at the way Jesus dealt with people, I want to say a few things about this. I won't say as much as I could because I did say some things about this before. But when you look at the way that Jesus dealt with people, I want you to notice a couple of things about it. First, Jesus made time for people. You can hardly read through the New Testament without reading that Jesus took some time to have a meal with someone. Oftentimes, he was uh, having meals with and spending time with people that were considered undesirable. But Jesus wasn't so high and mighty that he couldn't make the time to sit down and sup with people around him. Uh, he would go to... Uh, he would go to Simon's house and have food there and lodge with him and his family. When he called Levi, the Bible says of Matthew that Jesus went to his house and supped with publicans and sinners. You remember when he was walking by, Zacchaeus had, had climbed a tree so that he could see the Lord. And Jesus said, come on down because I'm going to go to your house and I'm going to sup with you today. Jesus even shared meals with the Pharisees, people that he wasn't on the same page with, but he made the time. See, sometimes I think maybe we get ahead of ourselves and we just think, well, I just tell people the right thing. Well, you can tell them, but you know, if you want to be effective, you need to take some time and build a bridge across which you can communicate the truth so that people will be willing to receive it. Jesus did that. He made time for people. I remember Jesus being on his way to heal Jairus' daughter, and there was a woman, the Bible says she had an issue of blood for 12 years. She fights her way through the, crowd, through the crowd and touches the Lord, and she's healed. Now, Jesus is on his way to do something, but you know what he did, don't you? He stopped what he was doing, called to that woman, and had a few moments of time with her before he went on about his business. He made the time. When John the Baptist died, that hit Jesus pretty hard. The Bible says that the Lord uh, took some time to go off to a mountain place to be alone and pray. You know, he, he loved John. It was his cousin physically, but he respected this man as a, as a prophet and as a preacher, and he took that pretty hard. He wanted some time to himself, the same way you or I might want some time to ourselves if we experience a loss like that. But you know what? People went and found Jesus where he was, and you know, he still made time, though he wanted some time to himself. I'm just saying to you, when you study the life of our Lord, if you want to be his disciple, you're going to have to make time for people. Not only was Jesus one who would make time with people, but he was also a, a person who was a very kind in how he handled people, generally speaking. Bible tells me he was a gracious man. He didn't kick people when they were down. You know, when people came to him and they were already broken and contrite about their sins, Jesus didn't rub their noses in it. No, ma'am, no, sir. Jesus was the kind of person who would say, where are those who accuse you? Well, there's nobody left, Lord, in John chapter 8. And then he would say, well, listen, I'm not going to condemn you either. Just don't keep doing that. Stop sinning. Woman comes to Jesus while he's supping, by the way, at Simon the Pharisee's house. Woman comes to him. And she doesn't even speak. She washes his feet with the tears from her eyes and the hair on her head. I want you to notice something here. Jesus, 
Jesus knows that this woman is a sinner. Simon says he can't be a prophet because if he was, he'd know what kind of woman she was. The problem wasn't that Jesus didn't know what kind of woman she was. The thing was, Jesus knew what kind of heart she had. And so he does not condemn her. He's very kind and very graceful in how he treats her. Her sins are forgiven. Jesus was, uh, Jesus was a social man. And part of doing Jehovah's work required him to interact with people and to be social. I think sometimes we should be reminded of that because when you see what's going on in our society, maybe you have the same visceral reaction that I do, the same kind of gut reaction. Your initial response is, I don't want to be a part of that, and so I want to draw back away from it. Well, listen, Jesus lived in a pretty dark time too, didn't he? I mean, Jesus was not impressed with the the moral fabric of the society in which he lived. He lived in a time where people were not everything they should have been spiritually, but, but he didn't run away from people. Rather, he made it his business to interact with people. He was a social man, a social being. I think that if Jesus found it necessary to be social, if Jesus found it necessary to accomplish his mission to interact with people, I think maybe we will too. He was not only gracious, but he was very generous. You know, there's several places in the Bible where it says that Jesus, people came to Jesus with their infirmities and Jesus healed them all. You remember Jesus has got people who've come out to listen to him. He has 5,000 men beside women and children. They've come out to interact with him. They're listening. They want to hear a word from the Lord. And he's fed them spiritually. But he also knows that their bodies need to be fed as well. And he takes the the loaf of bread or the loaves of bread and the fish. He takes a a young boy's lunch and he he feeds the 5,000. He feeds them spiritually physically as well as spiritually. He was generous in that regard. And then, then he does that again. He feeds 4,000 beside the women and children. He was a gracious man. He was a generous man. He was effective in dealing with people. He had to grow into that. Sometimes we know the truth, but we're not the most effective in dealing with people and helping them to know the truth. And that just means maybe we have some growing to do in this regard. You ask yourself why. If I see things in society that I, that I know aren't pleasing to God, if I see things in society that I'd rather not, uh, rather not associate with, be around, hear about even, why? Why should I run headlong into the people? Why should I spend time? Why should I make time to interact with people and be very careful and very cautious and calculated about how I handle and treat people? If we're going to do what God wants done, we also have to interact with folks. And I want you to keep something in mind. There is a real reason for it. Look in Matthew chapter 5, if you don't mind. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And this is the Sermon on the Mount, of course, in Matthew chapter 5. I want you to think about this with me for a moment. If you'll look about verse number 13, beginning. He says in verse 13, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing 
but to be cast out and trodden under foot of men. What is he saying? You are what salt is to the human family. Salt has an enhancing quality, doesn't it? You, you put salt on your food because you, you understand that it enhances the taste. It also has a preservative quality. That is, uh, it will help preserve meats and so forth. And that was especially important during a time where they didn't have refrigeration. Salt was so valuable. You know, the Romans sometimes paid people with salt. That's where the phrase comes from, a person being worth his salt. It was it was a way that they actually received their wages. It was pretty valuable. People traded precious metals and so forth for spices and, and salt. And so Jesus says, you're incredibly valuable. You, you have a preservative influence. You have, you have an enhancing influence. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But listen to it. If the salt loses its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? If salt doesn't want to be salt, where are we going to get the salt from? I mean, if salt doesn't want to do its job, well, where are we going to get? Who are we going to get? What are we going to get to do its job? And look at verse 13. He says, it is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden underfoot of men. I mean, if salt doesn't want to be salt, it's not very useful, is it? What are you going to do with salt that's not salty? Well, you throw it out. See, salt is supposed to have uh, an influence. And if it doesn't have an influence, Jesus says it's not even worth keeping around. Salt is not valuable just because it is salt. It's valuable because of what it does. It's valuable because of the influence it has on whatever it is coming into contact with. Look at verse number 14. You are the light of the world, he says. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. Verse 15, neither do men light a lamp and put it under the bushel, but on the stand, and it shines unto all them that are in the house. Even so, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. He, he uses another analogy. First, he says, you are salt. You're supposed to have an influence. I mean, if salt doesn't have an influence, there's no reason to keep it around. You're salt. Then he says, you're light. I tell you what you don't do. You don't light a candle and then cover it with the bushel. It doesn't matter that the light burns. What matters is that the light gives light to others. It allows others to see. You know what they used to do in the olden times is they would light a candle and they would put it in a, in a hole in the wall in an alcove or something like that so that it could shine and light up the whole room. We don't put lamps on the floor and then cover it up. We put lamps on the ceiling so that when we turn the light on, we can see. The value in the light is not the light itself. It's what the light allows people to do. It allows people to see. It's the influence. Now he says, you are the light of the world. He says, you put the light up and you let it shine for all the people in the house. An influence on others. Let your light so shine before men, he says. I just want you to think about something for just a moment here. If it were possible for us to be in the world and hide from the world and do what Jesus wants us to do, I suppose that would be an option. 
But it's no more possible for us to be in the world and hide from the world than it was for Jesus to be in the world and hide from the world. Because if we don't interact with other people, other individuals and groups, we cannot fulfill our mission. Jesus came to die for the lost. And so he interacted with the lost. You and I have come to lead the lost to Jesus. I tell you what you can't do. You can't do that by hiding from people who don't already know Jesus. I want to make a few suggestions this morning because it may be that you're like I am. And sometimes that's not the easiest thing in the world to interact with a bunch of people. Uh, I, I saw something a few months ago, maybe I don't know if it was a couple months ago, but I saw something about introverts, you know, and I sort of am an introvert. The only difference between introverts and extroverts is sort of what happens when you interact with people. It's not whether you interact with people, it's what happens when you interact with people. Some people thrive on dealing with people. They, they get energized in dealing with people. And so they love being around people and they feel better after they've been around a bunch of people. That's an extrovert. An introvert is drained by dealing with people. It's not that they don't interact with people, it's just that after they finish interacting with people, now they're worn out from all that interacting with people. I'm sort of an introvert. Uh, if I could just kind of be left alone and read books, I'd be pretty happy with that. I can sit in an auditorium like this, 400 people in here, and I mean, if nobody wants to talk to me, I'd be fine, I won't take it personally. I'm just telling you, it takes something out of me. Like after I finish interacting with people, I'm like, now nah, I need to go home and take a nap, man. I'm worn out interacting with all those people. Now, I say that to say that it may not be natural for everyone to make it their business to go out and meet and interact with people. Like some people will feel drained by doing that. That's no problem. That's no problem. Doesn't mean you don't have to do it. And for some people, it's not natural for them to interact with people in highly effective ways. Well, that's no problem either. That just means you have to grow just like I do, just like Jesus did. Let me make a couple of suggestions here, some things that may be helpful to you if you say, well, this is an area where I could stand to grow. Well, then you need to work on it is all so you can be more effective in your dealings with people as you serve, as you serve the Lord. And so this is the path that I recommend for growing socially. Number one, you have to engage people. As I said, our visceral response sometimes might be to try to get away from people, but that's the opposite of what we need to do. We have to be intentional about interacting with people. We have to be intentional about engaging people. Look at Luke chapter 14. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus uh, says something that's pretty profound here, uh, beginning at verse number, let's see here. I suppose we'll begin our reading at verse number 12. He says to him also that had bidden him, this is Jesus again. He, this is Jesus again being in a social setting with somebody in a man's house. He says to him that had also bidden him, when you, when you make a dinner or a supper, do not call your friends, nor your brethren, nor your kinsmen, nor rich neighbors, lest happily they also bid you again and a recompense be made to you. He says what you're likely to do 
is invite people you already know, people you're already comfortable with, people you already have a relationship with, and you'll invite them to come to your house for dinner so you can interact with them, and then they will in turn invite you back to their house. So you kind of keep interacting with the same people. He says instead, verse 13, when you make a feast, bid the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you shall be blessed because they don't have a means to recompense you for you shall be recompensed in the resurrection of the just. What's he saying? You need to make it your business to engage people you don't already know. You need to make it your business to engage people who might otherwise be socially outcast, people who can't do anything for you. Those are the people you need to go out of your way to spend time with. And they're not going to pay you back. They're not going to invite you to come to their home next weekend. The Lord will take care of all of that in the resurrection of the just, he says have to be intentional about interacting with people. Maybe the kind of people that you wouldn't naturally go out of your way to interact with. You remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is dealing with the problem of sin in the church there. And he says something again that's pretty interesting in terms of what his expectations were for those folks. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 9, I wrote to you in my epistle to have no company with fornicators. I, I wrote another letter, and we don't have a copy of it, but he says, I'd written another letter, and uh, in that letter I told you not to spend time socially with fornicators. In verse number 10, he explains, not at all meaning with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous and extortioners or with idolaters, for then you must needs go out of the world. He says, I told you not to be around sexually immoral people, but, but uh, I didn't mean sinners who are not saved people. I didn't mean sinners who are not in the church. I didn't mean sinners who don't know Christ, because if you were going to avoid them socially, you'd have to leave the planet, okay? You can't do that. Rather, he says in verse 11, but as it is, I wrote to you not to keep company if any man that is named a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner and with such a one know not to eat. You know, eating is, uh, is pretty intimate social activity. Uh, we, we do a lot of eating around here. Anybody else ever notice that? A lot of eating in this congregation. Well, eating is, eating is designed to be intimate social activity. Jesus ate with people all the time. And he says, you should, you should be spending time with people, but if people are given to living a life of sin, you don't want to spend time with a brother who does that. But he says, I didn't tell you to try to avoid social interactions with people who are not Christians just because they're not right. Listen, that's the only way you're going to reach them. You have to engage people. Jesus did it, and we will have to do that as well. We have, to, we have to spend time with folks. The next thing I'll tell you if you want to be effective is you have to evaluate people sometimes. Listen, what I don't mean here is uh, criticize and condemn. That's not what I mean. I don't mean make it your business to be a judge over other people. No, no. But what I do mean is Jesus didn't treat everybody the same way. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. He was notably severe in dealing with the Pharisees. He called them whitewashed walls. He called them hypocrites. He was notably severe in dealing with them, but he was notably tender in dealing with most people. 
And you ask yourself why, because he's dealing with two different people. You know, you have to spend a little time trying to get to un understand people and know people, and so you can know how best to deal with people. Paul did very much the same thing. I've mentioned the verse several times in several different settings. It's just one of my favorites. You, you remember in 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 19, he says, uh, listen, if I was dealing with a person who who was a Jew, then I became as a Jew. You know, if I was dealing with someone who was very sensitive to the law of Moses, I knew the law of Moses, I respected the law of Moses, and I, and I made sure to keep that in mind when I was dealing with them. But, but if I was dealing with someone who didn't know the law of Moses, they were without the law, then I didn't wrap myself all up in the law of Moses. Why? It wouldn't have meant anything to them. I dealt with them where they were. He says, to the weak I became as weak. When I was dealing with someone who was struggling with something, I paid enough attention to see what they were struggling with. And while their struggle may not have been my struggle, I do have my own struggles. So I identified with them and their weakness. He says, I became all things to all men that I might by any means save some men. You have to pay attention to other people, where they are, what they need, so you can deal with them effectively. Let me tell you something that I hear people say sometimes, and a Christian ought not to think this way. This is who I am, and if they don't like it, that's their problem. That is selfish thinking, condemnable thinking. You should be consumed with knowing who the Lord is, understanding who this person is, and understanding how you can bring the two together. It's not about you at all. It's not about your comfort at all. It's about leading someone to Christ, building a bridge across which you can lead them to the one who died for them. Christians ought not to think that way. It's about evaluating other people so we can deal with other people in effective ways. An interesting book I read about inspiring other people, I find this, this uh, comment may be helpful for us. It says, people are complex. What motivates one means little to another. What provides inspiration for one person may fall flat with another. You can't treat everyone exactly the same and expect uniform results. I think we know that's true. So we have to spend some time getting to know and understand other people so we can deal with them in effective ways. The third thing, we have to encourage other people. Jesus was always very positive in leading his apostles, although they were... They were flawed men, to say the least. I mean, we're flawed ourselves, and these men were not perfect. Uh, some of them were intemperate. Some of them were ignorant about things that they should know, and sometimes that frustrated the Lord. But he was, he was always incredibly positive in dealing with them. They had obstacles to overcome. They failed sometimes. They made mistakes. But Jesus still found a way to look at them with a positive lens. You remember uh, Simon is going to betray him. He says, uh, listen, uh, you guys are all going to run out on me. Uh, I'm going to die tomorrow. And I mean, you guys are not going to be there with me. I've been with you all this time. And when I need you most, all of you are going to leave. And Simon says, it'll never be me. I'll never do that. Well, what's the problem? I mean, Jesus just said you would. Are you not going to listen to the Lord? He said you would and you're not paying attention. You said you won't. He says, listen, before the cock crows three times, or before the cock crows twice, you'll deny me three times. Peter's, Peter's not paying attention. Well, Jesus says, listen, Simon is going to have you. He's desired to have you. I've prayed for you. 
And it's not going to go very smoothly, but when you're converted, I want you to strengthen the brethren. You're going to go through some things, but I believe you'll come back from it. And when you do, I believe you'll be a great asset to me and my church. Negativism is contagious. Anybody like being around negative people all the time? Nothing's ever good. Nothing's ever right. Uh, I, have to te I have to take people like that in very small doses. And I'm probably not alone. Negativism is contagious. If every time somebody makes a suggestion about something that can be done, the person's response is that it cannot be done, they wear other people out. Negativism is contagious. And so is positivism. Uh, it's just better to be around people who, uh, who are always encouraging, at least uh, who try to see, even when there's a problem, that there is a way to recover. There is some potential good that can come from this. If you want to interact with people well, then you need to leave people feeling encouraged rather than discouraged the way that Jesus did. You know, when, when Jehovah went to speak to Cain, he says, listen, we have a problem here. Uh, this sin is lying at the door. Now you should master it. You should overcome it. And you can overcome it. See, this is something that you can do. If you do well, you'll be received. He's trying to encourage him to do the right thing. And I'm just telling you that even when things look dark, encouraging people tend to interact with others better than people who are negative. Educate. Educate. Jesus taught people how to live better lives. Jesus always showed people how they could be better. In Luke 5 and verse 32, the Bible says, Jesus speaking, I didn't come to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners to repentance. You remember in Mark chapter 10, we read about the man, we call him sometimes the rich young ruler in different places in the synoptic gospels. It tells us he was rich and he was young and he was a ruler. This man comes to Christ and he says, uh, well, I just like to know what I have to do to inherit eternal life. Good question. Good question. Jesus says, uh, Boy, I tell you what, if you, if you keep the law, you do what the Bible says, then you'll be fine. And Jesus gives him sort of a, a short list of things that are required under the old covenant. And he says, I've done all that since my youth. In verse 21, in verse 21, the Bible says Jesus, looking at him, loved him and told him, there's one thing you're lacking. Go and sell what you have and give it to the poor. And then you'll have treasure in heaven. The Bible says he went away sorrowful because he had a lot of stuff. But Jesus was not going to leave that man without showing him what he still needed to do in order to be better. I sometimes say, you know, if I need to improve on something, a person who will tell me that is a friend. A person who will ignore that is not my friend at all. It's good to be encouraging, and we should be encouraging, but at the same time, our goal is to help people live better lives. Jesus always educated people so that they could do that. Exemplify, that is, that would set a good example. It's not enough to talk about it. We also have to be about it. We have to demonstrate it. Jesus would say to his disciples, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. When you look at me and you see how I behave, when you listen to me and you see how I speak, you have seen the Father in me. How many of us can say that? How many of us can say that our neighbors have seen the Father when they see us? How many of us can say that our coworkers can see God in us 
because of our example. Well, that's the way Jesus lived, and the Bible says that we ought to live in much the same way. In 1 Peter 3, for example, the Bible says husbands should be in subject, or wives should be in subjection to their husbands, that if they don't obey the word, if they don't obey because they have heard it, they will be converted without the word by the behavior of their wives. If you want to have a positive influence on people, you have to live the way God would want you to live before people. In a book called uh, Mastering Monday by a man named John Beckett, it's a helpful little book. He says, Indeed, the lesson from David's tragic error reminds me that regardless of how much I achieve, if I become careless, those successes can be obliterated by moral failure. Uh, what, is his, what is he saying? A lot of good teaching can be undone by a poor example. If you want to be a good influence on people, you want people to listen to you and be willing to receive what you can share with them in the Lord's name, telling them is not enough. You have to show them also. And it doesn't matter if you know all the right facts. If you live a life that's foul, people are not going to want to listen to you. They won't want to be influenced by you. When I was in law school, there were several people who self-identified as Christians, and a lot of them went to church services and stuff on Sunday. And I wasn't a Christian, and I didn't go to church services on any day. But sometimes I would go to other places, the kinds of places I wouldn't darken the door now on a Friday or a Saturday. And I would see some of those same people in some of those same places. You see, so the fact that I saw them doing things they shouldn't do, when they would invite me to come with them on Sunday, I just wasn't interested. I, I've never been a huge fan of hypocrites. I don't know how you feel about it, but I've never been a huge fan of hypocrites. Your example, I don't care what you're saying, I see what you're doing. There was one person in particular who was, who was uh, more consistent in what she said and did, and I married her. When I decided that I wanted to do right, when I read the Bible for myself and I said, listen, I need to go to somebody's church. She said, well, I've been inviting you to church for five years. So well, I wasn't listening. She said, well, yeah, if you're going to go, you should come with me. And I went with her because I saw how she lived, not just what she said. I'm just telling you, if you want to be effective in influencing people, you have to live the life you talk about. Your example. Empathizing. Jesus was an empathetic man. You remember in John 8 when the woman was taken in the act of adultery, the people came to her and said, came to him and said, listen, the Bible says, the law of Moses says we ought to stone this woman. Jesus didn't contradict them. That is what the law of Moses said. He said, the one who's without, the, who's without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. They indicted themselves and walked away. When Jesus asked, where are the people who accuse you? She said, they're not here. And Jesus said, well, I'm not going to condemn you either. Go and sin no more. The thing that's interesting to me about that, do you see with how much dignity he handled that woman? Listen, this was a woman who was taken in a scandalous sin. A scandalous sin. She deserved to be stoned. And there was a mob calling for her stoning. Do you see that Jesus didn't he didn't give over to a mob mentality and rail against her just because everybody around him was railing against her. You see how he treated her as an individual. He understood that what she needed was somebody who could 
put himself in her place and treat her with love and tender care in this weak and vulnerable moment. That's what he did. He treated the woman with dignity, though she hadn't been behaving with dignity. In Luke 6 and 31, Jesus says, listen, you should treat men the way you want to be treated, as you would that men should do to you, do also to them likewise. In Luke 10, verse 36, uh, you remember the Bible's talking about the man who's traveling on the Jericho Road, and the, the book tells us that he falls among thieves as he's doing that. I, I, don't see, I don't read that he was with anyone else. It was a dangerous road to travel. And he's traveling that road. It seems that he's alone. He falls among thieves and they beat the man and they rob him and they strip him, leave him naked and half dead on the side of the road. And listen to it. Religious people come by. The priest comes by. The Levite come by. And they don't have any empathy for this man. I don't know what they're, well, I don't know what's going on in their minds. You know, maybe they're thinking, well, this guy shouldn't be here by himself anyway. I mean, he didn't know enough to, that he's traveling by himself like this. Well, maybe he's dead and I don't want to be inconvenienced. I don't want to become ceremonially unclean and now have to be separated from the people for a time and wash and all. I don't want to go through all of that. But you know what they failed to do? They failed to put themselves in his position there on the side of the road because if they were in his position on the side of the road all they would have wanted was for someone would have been for someone to stop and help them religious people sometimes fail to remember what it's like to be half dead on the side of the road you haven't always been right you have not always been perfect don't forget that you needed Jesus to die for you as much as anybody else. The Samaritan comes along and he helps the man. Listen, pours oil and wine in his wounds, puts him on his beast, takes him to the inn, cares for him overnight, pays so the man can stay there and recover and says, if it costs more, then I'll pay more. Jesus says, who was neighbor to that man? Who, who was neighbor to him? Well, it was, it was the Samaritan, and then Jesus says, now you go and do something like that. You see someone who's in distress. You put yourself in their position, and you help somebody else. You empathize. It doesn't take a whole lot to see when somebody's not right. Maybe it takes something more to put yourself in the position of the person who's not right so you can help them more effectively. Listen, there are a lot of people in this world who do things that we disagree with. There are a lot of people who say things that we have a strong reaction to. But don't forget this. We don't hate anyone. We love everyone. And if it means that I've got to be patient, if it means I've got to do some work, if it means I've got to try very hard to understand, that's what I'm going to do. What I'm not going to do is speak harshly. What I'm not going to do is make fun of people who live in a different way than I do. I'm going to try to understand where they're coming from so I can be most effective in helping them. Don't be like Jonah, who didn't want to see other people saved. He said, I, didn't know, I, knew, that, I knew that you'd forgive them. Well, how did you know that? Because he forgave you. You know he's forgiving. Empathize with other people. The last thing I'll mention is this idea of elevation. Jesus helped people with their infirmities. You know, when Jesus, when people would be brought to Jesus, whatever their weakness was, he would make it his business to help them. 
He left people in a better position than they were before he interacted with them. He lifted people. And that's what we should do. If you're better off for interacting with people, you want to interact with them more. If people can elevate you and raise you up and help to take care of your weaknesses and your infirmities, you're more willing to interact with them and you're more willing to be open to be influenced by them and other people are just like you in that respect. The Bible says in Galatians 6 and 10, as we therefore have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. As we have opportunity, as long as the port is open, the port is open as long as you draw breath, there's opportunity for you to do good to all men, to try to lift, to lift those around you, especially those of the household of faith, but not only those of the household of faith. In Acts 10 and verse 38, Peter is talking about Christ, and the Bible says that Jesus went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, and God was with him. Jesus went about doing good, helping and healing people. You know, if you're not quite as uh, effective in dealing with people, as you could or should be. I just say to you, you have to grow some, that's all. And Jesus had to grow. And these are lots of different ways you could think about this. These are lots of different parts of this that you could work on. And over time, if you do, you will grow and develop and be better. You'll do a better job of serving than you would otherwise. When you interact with people, you should remember it's not about you or it's not about the other person. It's about your relationship with the Lord. Be minded to improve. Be minded to overcome your weaknesses, your inhibitions, your frailties. Be minded to grow and advance beyond that, to be perfected and mature, because that's what Jesus did, and it was necessary for him to fulfill his mission, and it's necessary for you to fulfill yours. Jesus is the Son of God. I listened to him because nobody's ever loved me like he did. I listen to him because no one has ever served me like he did. I listen to him because no one is ever going to save me like he did. He is the son of God. He had to work and grow and develop and so do I and so do you. If you believe in him, then you should change. You should repent of your sins. Every one of us has things that need to be changed. And the only, the only real motivation that matters in eternity is that you believe in Christ so you're willing to make changes to come into compliance with his will. That's what repentance is. You change your mind and you change your behavior. If you haven't already, you confess Christ with your mouth. You say before me and I believe Jesus is the son of God. If you haven't already, then you have to be baptized to have your sins washed away in the first instance. In baptism, faith, repentance, and baptism, God washes away all your previous sin. And then you live a life that's faithful. You live a life emulating the life of Christ. And ultimately, one day, you'll lay the body down. And in the meantime, you will have led as many others to Christ as you possibly could. I hope that something we've said is helpful this morning. If we can help you, we'd ask you to let us know. We will stand together and sing this song of invitation. If we can help you, we, please, we invite you to please come and let us know how we can.